We're in the book of John, chapter 1. This morning, I, uh, well, of course, I was studying this through the week, but really do my, a lot of my um, intensive, I don't know, I, I finish up on sun, Saturday, right? What were you going to say? Focus. Am I focused? So the other time, I'm not focused. Well, never mind. Anyway, um, thanks for coming in. But uh, so, and, and as I thought about this, and I'm reading through this passage, I want to look at, I was actually wanting to look at uh, verses 29 through 34. And really, it really begins back in verse 19. Uh, there's a lot here, and so I'm going to kind of do this in chunks. I'm not going to do the whole thing um, this morning because I, I need about two and a half hours to cover this area and really to kind of look at it. It's, it's, it's really full. But for context, I want to back up and look at verse 19, or we're going to read starting in verse 19. I want to read to you all the way through verse 34. Because the testimony of John, John the Baptist. So I will be reading to you out of the New American Standard 2020. And then probably skip over to the New King James as I have a tendency to do. So it says in verse 19. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites to him from Jerusalem. And asked him, who are you? And he confessed, and he did not deny, and this is what he confessed, I am not the Christ. So they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you? Tell us so that we may give an answer to those who sent us. Who do you say, or what do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one calling out in the wilderness, makes the ways of the Lord straight, as Isaiah the prophet said. And the messengers had been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him, and they said to him, Why then are you baptizing, if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. That's an important aspect. It is he who comes after me, of whom I am not worthy even to untie the strap of his sandal. And these things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing people. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this is he in uh, this is he in behalf of whom I said, after me is coming a man who has proved to be my superior because he existed before me. And I did not recognize him. The King James, or excuse me, the New King James says, I did not know him. But so that he would be revealed to Israel, I came baptizing in water. And John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven. And he remained upon him. And I did not recognize him. Again, the New King James says, I did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, 
He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. So, Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning as we look into this passage. Lord, we ask that you'd minister to us that we might receive from you that which you have for us this morning. So we pray for the filling of your Holy Spirit that that might be accomplished. And that your Spirit would guide my heart, my mind, my voice, and that, Lord, that, uh, that I would speak the things that you would desire to share with each of us this morning. We thank you, Lord, again for your great faithfulness to us and for your mercies that are new to us every morning. And we thank you, Lord, that your word tells us and has given us that promise that you will never leave us nor forsake us. So we pray these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. Pick this up in verse 29, where it tells us the next day, which is probably the next day after this, this group from the Pharisees from Jerusalem uh, had had this discussion with John. And it tells us that the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, let me, let me put this out here right out front as we're, we're looking at this. This is probably written about a time after John had baptized Jesus. The other Gospels, have, and Mark is very, very brief, but Matthew and Luke go into a little bit greater detail of the baptism of Jesus. It's found in Matthew 3. And uh, this is probably better understood as something that occurred after Jesus was baptized. And there's, a, there's, a, there's always the tendency for us when, when the, a gospel is maybe not filling in all the gaps that we would like to see filled in, and it, I think we all do that. There's a tendency for us to want to run to the other Gospels to attempt to fill in some of those gaps. And, and it makes sense. I, I'm not knocking it. There's also a, a, a work that was done. I think it was done in the late 1800s. It's called A Harmony of the Gospel, where essentially what they have attempted to do, let me underline the word attempted, is to try to give you a chronological account of the Gospels, and it basically gives it to you, uh, and it breaks up all four Gospels into one book. So you have this narrative. It's helpful, and it's not helpful, in my opinion. I had to buy it when I was in an undergrad years ago at Cal Baptist. Um, the, the thing about trying to harmonize
Gospels is that we sometimes then forget that although the author is the Holy Spirit, he used human authors to be able to record these things. It's believed that Mark was written first. Matthew and Luke used Mark as one of their sources for how they put together their Gospels. It's believed that John wrote his Gospel much later, much later. And if you have read uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those are known as the synoptic Gospels. If you have read those, you will find that the narrative in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is not always the same as the narrative in John. If you read them carefully, you will find that there are some conflicts in their narratives as far as this attempt to try to read this solely, completely chronologically. What we have to remember is the Holy Spirit inspiring four different men. Mark may have been sourced by Peter, okay? But four different men. Matthew was one of the apostles. Luke, I'm still trying to figure out that angle. He hung out with Paul who did not come on the scene until after Jesus had resurrected. John probably was familiar with the other three Gospels. Don't necessarily have full proof of that, but to me it really makes sense being that they were written uh, anywhere from 20 to 40 years earlier. John is working his gospel and writing his gospel, and it is more focused on themes than it is on chronology. He, he's writing us a story. He's trying to get us familiar with certain gospel themes. Now, when I say he's writing us a story, is everything that he wrote about true? I believe it is. I believe it is. But he's putting together these facts in such a way that they fit in and address certain themes in his gospel. Am I making sense so far? I hope I am. I think I am. Um, At least I understand. Well, that doesn't mean anything, right? And so what you have here, uh, and, and where he's talking about the testimony of John the Baptist, is that that he's already telling the Pharisees that he's not the Christ, he's not Elijah, he's not the prophet, he is the voice that is crying out in the wilderness, and he sees Jesus the next day, and as we read the account, he's already talking about the baptism experience that he had when he baptized Jesus. And he's testifying that he was told somehow, some way, in some fashion. One of the early fathers believed that John received a vision from God when he was in the desert, telling him when it was time to go out and preach repentance for the kingdom of God is at hand, to baptize people in the Jordan, and to uh, telling him that when he baptized a certain person, 
that the Spirit of God would descend upon him in the form of a dove and would remain upon him, that the Father would speak. And, and so that was kind of his cue for his ability to identify who the Messiah is. Now, I know there's some problems with what I just said. Because John the Baptist and Jesus were together at least in one place when they were both inside the wombs of their mother, as given to us in the book of Luke. So they knew each other. But here's the question. Did they have play dates? Did they know each other growing up? We don't know that. It tells us in Luke chapter 1, verse 80, that John went out into the wilderness and, and spent much time out in the wilderness. We don't know how old he was when he did go out in the wilderness, but he went out into the wilderness and stayed there until the time of his public ministry. How well did John and Jesus know each other? We don't know. We don't know. Obviously, Jesus knew John, right? But we don't know for sure. Matthew tells us, Matthew chapter 3, that when Jesus comes to John and says, I'm paraphrase here, okay, without turning there, baptize me, and, and John says, I'm not going to baptize you. You should be baptizing me. And, and, and Jesus says, permit it for now or allow it for now as such as pertaining for all things of righteousness. All right? And, and so upon hearing that, John baptizes him. So they, they must have known each other somehow, some way. All right? And John must have had some type of an understanding. We don't know how much. To the point where he would say to Jesus, I'm not going to baptize you. You need to be baptizing me. Why did John leave that out? Let's make it even more fun. Why did the Holy Spirit not inspire John to write that? See, the problem with harmonizing is that somehow when we just harmonize this, and I've just done it somewhat, although I've left some loopholes, when we strictly attempt to harmonize the Gospels, we can sometimes lose the real emphasis of which that particular story in the gospel was given to us. Remember what I said just a minute ago. John operates on themes. There's two themes that are prevalent in this particular little passage that we're going to look at, and I'm going to have to part to it, right, because there's just way too much for me to cover. But there are two themes that he's covering here that I want to bring to your attention this morning. The next day, it says in verse 29, he saw Jesus coming to him and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now that makes sense to you and I, right? Because we've read the Bible. We understand. We understand Revelation 5. Uh, Many other Areas where this idea of the Lamb of God could be plugged in and serve as a form or a type 
or a prefigure. Now, I'm talking about the Old Testament where it talks about the Lamb of God, where it serves as a type or a prefigure of the coming Messiah. And I think there are two main instances here, biblically, that we can talk about. But before we go into those, it's fascinating to me because and it's, it's, it's a very, um, there's a document, a couple of documents. There's a lot of writings out there that, that I, we don't bother really to get into often. One is called the Testament of Joseph. Joseph being what? The, the son of, of uh, Jacob. Another one's the Testament of Benjamin. These are Jewish documents. Some claim that uh, the Christians got a hold of them and doctored them up, right? But... There, there's a, an expression, there, part, of a, a, part of the writing of uh, the Testament of Joseph is this prophecy that he gives that there'll be a virgin that comes forth from the tribe of Judah. And the virgin will give birth to a lamb. Now, obviously it's spoken in metaphor, right? Because it, 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 it's not a, a, a real prophecy of a woman giving birth to an animal. That would just be just ridiculous. It's, it's obviously metaphor, right? And that could possibly have played into the thinking when John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because they would have had some type of an understanding, they being the people who heard this originally. But I think biblically, there's two main ideas that I I like. Uh, And I'll I'll explain the second one why in a minute. But the first one is in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. It says in verse 7, and Isaiah chapter 53 is a messianic prophecy. Uh, it It even talks about crucifixion. It even talks about his side being pierced. And, and it, it describes the experience of Jesus on the cross in, in enough detail that there have been accusations that that was added later. I don't believe it was added later. I think Isaiah prophesied these things. And in verse 7 of chapter 53, it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, and he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. And, and this whole in, incredible expression, well, you know, let me just read to you a little more out of it. This, there, there's one area that I want, want to touch on real fast. Isaiah 53. Verse 10, it says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, and he has put him to grief. Verse 10, I'll just throw this out here, is a very, very difficult uh wording in the Hebrew to even properly translate into English. So it may not actually say exactly what it says here in the New King James. That's for free. 
Um, when you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So that's speaking of a future realization of the Messiah, who although he dies, is implying very strongly that he will rise again. He shall see his labor and be satisfied. Uh, oh, excuse me. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. Verse 11. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. There's taking away the sins of the world right here. For he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, verse 12, I will divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Isaiah 53 is describing in, the, in some respects how that is done. So I think John the Baptist is referring to Isaiah 53 uh, in this proclamation, but I think even deeper, he's referring to the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb is another theme that we will come across a few times in the Gospel of John. And, and you have the Passover first given to us in the book of Exodus chapter 12. I'm not going to take the time to go back and, and read all of it. Um, but it was were the, the children of Israel, and it, it's before they are going to be taken out or led out or redeemed out, because Paul, uh, the Lord uses the word redemption earlier in the book of Exodus. They are told the night before they're to leave Egypt to take a Passover lamb, to take a lamb without blemish, without spot. And they're to kill the lamb in their homes. They're to eat all the lamb along with other herbs and stuff. I'm not going to want to go fully into this. But they are to take the blood of the lamb and they are to apply the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and on the header. Some people call it the lintel. Uh, they are to apply it over the doorway. Why? Because the tenth plague was about to happen, which would finally break Pharaoh enough to where he would let the people of Israel, the children of Israel, go. And so they sent, God sends the death angel, and whenever the death angel would see the blood applied on the doorway of the home, he would pass over it. Now, of course, the death angel, if he saw, did not see the blood on the doorway, he would enter into the home and he would kill the firstborn of any who was in that particular home. So it's this incredibly extreme judgment that has to be understood 
in the context that there were nine previous plagues that God used to try to get Pharaoh's attention. And Pharaoh hardened his heart. And after Pharaoh hardened his heart, God hardened it for him. So he sends the death angel. But he makes a provision. He finally sends in an ultimate judgment. But he makes a provision of a sacrificial lamb that would be killed in the home and then the blood of the lamb would be applied. What's interesting about this is that there there was even argument about whether the Passover lamb was in fact a sacrificial offering. At the time of Jesus, they no longer sacrificed the the Passover lamb at home. Where'd they do it? They did it in the temple. They did it in the temple. In the temple by the priest who did the slaying of the lamb and the applying of the blood, therefore it became a form of a sacrifice for sin. That was what was understood by the people of that day. So, He's referring to this Passover lamb. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The blood was applied, and so the judgment passed over. And, and I, I believe that's, where, that's the reference that John is, is using here. And it could, uh, John the Baptist, who says this, John the apostle who wrote this, will use this Passover figure and apply it to the Lord Jesus Christ again in his book as we go through this. Recognizing, as Paul said, when he, I believe he wrote to, uh, the, to 2 Corinthians that the Lord is our Passover. He is our Paschal Lamb. He is our Seder Lamb. He is the one whose the blood was applied to the doorpost of our hearts. Therefore, death passes over us. It's it's an incredible illustration. And that could only be done by the blood of the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin, right? Hebrews tells us this. Leviticus tells us this. So that's what John, I believe, John the Baptist, is proclaiming when he makes this statement about Jesus. And, and then he, go, he goes on. And he says, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. So he's reiterating that again. He's already said this earlier, right, in this chapter. He was before me. He recognizes the preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ, even though John the Baptist was born, what, about six months earlier. But he's recognizing that Jesus comes from eternity past. And interesting, too, where it says, for he was before me, that word was, is the imperfect tense of the verb to be, which means an action that happened in the past continuously. Not a completed action, 
but a continuous action that happened in the past. It hints at eternity. I was using that particular uh, verb again to express the preeminence, the one who existed before time began, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, in the, I'm going I'm to switch to the New King James, as I mentioned to you earlier, where he says, I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel, therefore I came baptizing with water. Now I find that to be interesting that he says, first of all, he says, I'm going I'm to back up to this idea of where he says, I, don't, I didn't know him. He says it twice in this passage. First, he, he's talking about uh, this idea is that he was baptizing so that he might identify the Messiah. Now that fascinates me because Matthew, again, I'm, tell, I'm warning you about harmonizing and yet I'm going to do it. Matthew says that he went out and he baptized for the remission of, uh, for, for baptism under repentance. It was a bat, John's baptism was a baptism unto repentance. In other words, if you repented of your sins, you signified that, you sealed that repentance by what? By being baptized by John which was something very different in that time because the baptism previous or the mikvah, uh, the, the, the Hebrew washing, was one that someone did to themselves. Here, John is putting them under the water. And he's saying here in John that he, he was doing so so that he might identify the Messiah because it was told him John bore witness, verse 32, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and it remained upon him and I did not know him. He says it a second time, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. We're not even going to get into that part this morning. We don't have time. Well, we do, but no, we don't. Okay. Okay. Um, so think about this. You're John the Baptist. Well, don't maybe not go there. But let's look at the ministry of John the Baptist. To me, it fascinates me. Luke 1, 80 says he goes out in the desert. He's out in the wilderness. He lives really a monastic lifestyle. And he's out there essentially just waiting for years and trying to remain in contact, in communion, in, in fellowship with God. And God says, I want you to go out and preach repentance, baptize people in the Jordan. And by the way, it is through this ministry of repentance and then baptism that I will reveal to you who the Messiah is. Now, if God told me that, I might be inclined to say, uh, what else you got? That's hard. That's not easy. That's a step of faith. Now, I don't know, but think about every male that he baptized. They're underneath. I'm looking around, no dove, bring him up, 
no, you're not it. Next, you know, and 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 yet remaining faithful, remaining faithful to that word that God has given you previously, and yet you do not see it come to pass. I'm still waiting on stuff. But attempting to be faithful. And, and I, don't know, I don't know what's worse. Being out in the desert that where, where you, you, all you hear is your own voice? Or when you're in front of everybody, oh, you're not it. You're not it. God, when is, when is he going to come? What was going on between John and Jesus? When John recognized, I don't, want, I don't want to baptize you, I want you to baptize me. What was going on there? How much did John fully understand we do not know? What we do know is what we read here in, in the first uh, chapter of John, where, where John the Baptist says, I didn't know him. I didn't know he was the Messiah. Maybe they hung out as kids. And it probably would not have been a stretch if they did hung out as kids, and we don't know whether they did or not, for John the Baptist to realize there was something very different about Jesus, who was sinless. You stub your toe and you're dropping F-bombs left and right and Jesus does the same thing, but he doesn't say a word. Yeah, that would get my attention, all right? Seriously. John the Baptist obviously recognizes that there is a huge difference between who he is as a person and who Jesus is as a person. Recognizing that he's a whole lot holier than John was. Now, John, John was a Nazarite, right? Didn't cut his hair, didn't eat or drink of the fruit of the vine, and then he was on this weird diet. Honey and locusts. Maybe this, I don't know. I, I, never mind, I'm not going there. I'm tempted. I don't know if I ever want to try that. But he said he didn't know him. That, see, that, that, that fascinates me. And, I, of course, I, I had to look up the word no in the Greek. And it's referring to a knowledge that you experience. It's a knowledge that you experience. It's something that you just don't hear about. It's not something that you just read about. It's not something that John watched on YouTube, right? But it was something that he personally engaged in. And I, and I, would, I would tell you and, and that, and I think it's Galatians 4 where it says, and before you knew God and then you knew God, or I should say, Paul says, you were known by him. I think it's around Galatians 4, somewhere around verse 19. There are various degrees of knowledge, is there not? And knowing. My wife knows me a whole lot better than any of you, for example. 
and vice versa, right? You know your spouses better than I know them. At least I hope so. And, and so there, in the realm of a relationship with people, you don't, you don't start out really knowing people. You, you kind of make observations and you kind of reserve a little bit sometimes. And, 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 and yet your knowledge about them begins to build as they demonstrate their faithfulness or their unfaithfulness for that matter. And, and John is looking for the sign. And, and what, I, what I'm sensing, and again, as, I, as I'm dealing with Matthew 3 and I'm dealing with what this is saying here, uh, John might have had suspicions in a good way that Jesus was more than just a mere man. But somehow, now he says, he was told that the one whom the dove came upon and remained, that was the Messiah, I think the baptism experience where Jesus was baptized was probably more for John the Baptist than it was for Jesus. For one thing, Jesus didn't need to be baptized. He had no repentance of sin to repent. He had no sin to repent of, right? But it was the the sign. Now, there are those who believe that Jesus was baptized with the Holy Spirit when he was baptized. And, and I understand that thinking, but I don't agree with that either. To be honest with you. Because if he is God, if we believe in the triune God like, like we say we believe in the triune God, he would have no need of being baptized in the Holy Spirit, would he? Three in one? The Holy Spirit comes in a form of a dub testifying bearing witness. The voice of the Father, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased, bearing witness. And it's at this time, and we will look into this probably in two weeks. Maybe we'll get into it next week. Where John is starting to figure out, and he'll talk about this in chapter 2, where he must decrease And the Lord Jesus Christ must increase. I hope. I hope I know God more today than I did. Five years ago, ten years ago. I hope all of you know God more, better, not more better, but more comma, better, okay? I hope you know him in a greater way. That's better, (laughs) okay, today than you did 10 years ago. And yet I think in this life all we really get to do is touch the hem of the garment. But he testified. This is his, his testimony. I've seen the Spirit descending on him and remaining, uh, the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven and remaining on him. And I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now, what about this baptism of the Holy Spirit? 
We'll talk about that next week. How's that? And kind of look at, there's different views. Um, I know some of you are, may not agree with what I have to say of it, but that's okay. That means I wouldn't agree with what you have to say about it. So there you go. We're even. How's that? Well, what I'm struck by, and I'll close here, is this incredible, incredible act of faith that's not really illuminated to us here in the passage, but no doubt it's described. Where God put a calling on John the Baptist's life, John the Baptist sat patiently waiting for that to be fulfilled in his life. Now, he's in his 30s, early 30s, probably 30, 31, when this is all happening. Out in the desert, listening for God. Ever been in the desert listening for God? Even if you do it in the confines of your own living room? Have you ever been in the spiritual desert? Seems like I live there half the time. But do you listen for God? How well do you know Jesus? How well do you know him? Could we all know him more? I think we could. But this isn't going to be one of those things I don't believe that we're like, all right, God, I'm going to know you more. I'm going to know you. Like my friend that was one time yelling at God because he was mad at God about some things going on. You're going to be my God, and you're going to do what I, well, you're going to take care of me. Right? And he's, he's going through this, this real difficult time. But he hadn't surrendered. And I think that was exactly the point of his trial. He hadn't been a Christian for too terribly long, but he he thought maybe being a Christian was the e-ticket in Disneyland. You guys know what the e-ticket in Disneyland is, right? We're old enough to know what that is. The act of surrender. The act of submitting. The act of Waiting. Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he heard my cry. I waited patiently for the Lord. My definition of that is three to five minutes. That works. I did it. Okay, let's have it. Could be three to five years. Could be three to five decades. But nonetheless, the sense of faithfulness to God because we have heard his voice. We are confident of his calling. And therefore, because of that, we have no other choice than to remain faithful to him. Because the reality is, as Peter said to Jesus, Caesarea Philippi, where else are we to go? For you alone have the words of eternal life. Amen.